you know one of my favorite Christian authors is C.S. Lewis. Uh, that great uh, British author from the 20th century who just has insights unlike anyone else I, I have read. And so you can imagine the excitement this week when I discovered that C.S. Lewis in his small little book called Reflections on the Psalms, that he actually has a chapter where he deals with our psalm today, Psalm 19. He's got a small little commentary on Psalm 19. He doesn't do this on all the Psalms, but on this one he does. And so my favorite Christian author has something to say about our text today. Man, super excited. So, what would Lewis say about Psalm 19? No small thing. Check this out. This is what C.S. Lewis says about our Psalm today, Psalm 19. He says, I take this, Psalm 19, to be the greatest poem in the Psalter that is the book of Psalms, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Okay, no small thing, right? So like C.S. Lewis, the great English professor, Oxford and Cambridge universities, a man well-read, probably more well-read than uh, most people of the 20th century. Ancient literature, English literature, and he says Psalm 19 is one of the greatest poems ever written. So buckle up. It's going to take six hours to do this. Yeah, we'll get about three o'clock when the game comes on. That's about when we'll end. Okay, so uh, if we're okay with that. But how do you, I mean? What a statement! The great one of the greatest poems ever written. But what we're going to try to do is take the insights from what Lewis calls one of the greatest poems the world's ever seen. We're going to try to take that great poem and just distill it in just a few minutes together. But it's going to have something to tell us about the universe, about ourselves, and about God Himself. So we'll jump in. Psalm 19. We'll read the whole thing, and then we'll we'll just make we'll just walk right through it. Just there's three sections here. We're just going to walk right through it and just gather these insights. And man, it's going to have something to say to you and me right here where we are. Psalm 19, a psalm of David. He starts off verse one: The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth, this meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
there are three sections. This psalm is broken up into three sections. And the first section, verses 1 through 6, has a lot to say about creation. But because C.S. Lewis has uh, some commentary on this, each of these sections, I just want to take a look at what Lewis had to say. It's just a unique moment we have uh, with Lewis. So take a look at how Lewis describes this first section. He says this, First, he, being David, thinks of the sky. How day after day the pageantry we see there shows us the splendor of its creator. Then he thinks of the sun, the bridal, the, the bridal joyfulness of its rising, the unimaginable speed of its daily voyage from east to west, finally of its heat. Not, of course, the mild heats of our climate, but the cloudless, blinding, terraneous rays hammering the hills, searching every cranny. The key phrase on the hills, uh, on the hills searching every, oh, sorry, the key phrase on which the whole poem depends is, there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. It pierces everywhere with its strong, clean ardor. Lewis is picking up on two things that's happening in this front section. I mean, a lot of things, but really two main things. And that is this, that the creation, like the trees and the oceans and the sky and the birds, like the whole creation is declaring that there's a God. There's a God. There is a creator. No one has ever looked at an iPhone and said, wow, like it just popped up. Like, here it is. Like it just happened. No, no one does that. Everyone knows it was designed by someone somewhere and built. How much more for our bodies and our world, the complex ecosystems across the planet. Literally, the whole creation is declaring there is a God. And how long has the creation been doing this? It does it every day with regularity. This is why David writes day after day, night after night. Like it consistently, regularly declares God and all of his power and all of his glory. Literally, the creation keeps saying day after day, night after night, there is a creator. It's just, it's, just, it's just saying, it's just, 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 just blurting out every day there is someone who made this, and you didn't. But every day that's happening, every night that's getting, that's getting shouted from the mountains, from the sea, on your yards, it's declaring there's a God. Now here's the thing. David then wants to make it like wants to just pull the imagery a little bit more. And so he uses the sun to describe how God does this. He describes the sun as like having this this tent over here and it just like bursts out of the tent every day. And it just it just makes a circuit across the sky. And he pulls on two metaphors, one of a groom coming out of the tent on his wedding night. And that groom is really, really happy. And it's just joyful. And it just, it, it, it's this, it's, it represents the radiance of God's glory. It's just something that just beams with joy. I mean, the sun is literally radiant. And then that champion who's running his court, it's power. It's power. And to make sure we get the imagery here of radiance and power, David says nothing is hidden from its heat. And here's what Lewis is picking up on. Nothing is ever hidden from the heat of the sun. It will always be felt. When the sun's shining and we're in summer, that heat and that light is getting into all the places around the world. 
And the thing here David wants to make sure we understand is in the same way that the sun has an impact on all creation, you're not going to hide from it. You can get air conditioning, but you're still not going to hide from the heat. That's the way God's existence works. You're not going to be able to look into creation and one day make an excuse in front of God. I didn't know. Like, I didn't know there was a God. Did you come and show me? Like, did you show up right in front of my face so I could see you existed? The answer will always be, you had my creation. I literally displayed myself day after day, night after night. And just like the sun's heat, no one can hide from his heat, you couldn't hide from the reality that I exist. There will be no excuse. Now, here's the cool thing about Scripture. It always is knit together. Things that were written hundreds, year, hundreds of years before will get pulled and we will hear the echoes. We'll see links back and move forward. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul has something to say about this. He, he actually is pulling on, the, he, he's echoing the very thing we're hearing in Psalm 19. Paul wrote this. I'm sure this is one of those well-known passages, Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 18 through 20, here's what Paul wrote. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Check this out. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. No one will go to God in the end with a good excuse. It's not going to happen. Now, we may think we have a good excuse. These things happened bad in my life. This, this unfortunate event occurred in my childhood. This or this or this. But, and, and therefore, because of this, this, and this, I know there's no God. One day, that excuse will not work because God will say, didn't you see what I made? The answer will be, yeah, there will be no excuse. There is a God. But the thing about God's revelation is it just doesn't come through nature, right? Like, it's not just like we were left with our yards, right? Or, or the birds or the dogs and cats. Although I think cats might come from a very different place than God's hand. Maybe I just, you know, this, I could make it biblical. But um, so... Um, so, so is that God also reveals himself through what theologians for years have called a special revelation. That is his word. It's not something that you just like can go out and find or you look and see. It has to come from the outside. This is the revelation of God. And in verse seven, David calls this the law of God. This is God's word, the law of God. Now, the word law, probably for you and me, immediately drums up the image of the Ten Commandments, right? The law of God, the Ten Commandments. And often, those two are together, that the Ten Commandments is the summary of the law. But the Hebrew word here actually is, means to instruct. So what we're dealing with here is when David writes about the law of God, he's talking about that instruction God gives to human beings Special revelation, you can't just go find it in the ocean, special revelation, God gives instruction for how to live a right life, particularly in His presence. He calls that the law of God. It's why He comes up with all these other synonyms for it, the precepts, the decrees, the testimonies. These are all God's instruction for how to live. 
God gives that to us. That's, that's what God gives. That's how He reveals Himself. Here's what Lewis has to say about this next section, verse 7 through 11. Lewis says this, Then at once, in verse 7, David is talking of something else, which hardly seems to him something else because it is so like the all-piercing, all-detecting sunshine. The law is undefiled. The law gives light. It is clean and everlasting. It is sweet, luminous, severe, disinfectant, exultant. What Lewis is trying to do here is trying to come up with words to describe how amazing God's Word is. That's what he's doing. He's coming up with a bunch of adjectives to try to figure that out because there's no end to the words you could use to describe how amazing God's Word is. And just, just so you can hear it, just, just in one list, I didn't put these on a slide, but David calls God's Word, this law of God, perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, and firm. There's just a whole other list of words we could come up with, but these, these inspired words, this describes God's Word. Now, the thing about the psalm here for me is not necessarily that God's law is perfect. I would just expect, I can go with that. I can get behind that. I intellectually can acknowledge that God's Word is perfect without fault. What I have a harder time getting behind is the feeling that God's Word is more precious than gold. Because you give me a million dollars... My heart is, my heart's going to be pretty, like, is going to be pretty drawn to a million dollars. I think a lot of things to do with a million dollars, right? Now, honey, I'm not, a, I'm not a big honey person. Like, I don't go around eating spoonfuls of honey. But you put, you put some peanut M and M's in front of me. So the idea that God's word is sweeter than peanut M peanut M and M's, like, man, I have a hard time with that. I. I you put the M&M's in front of me or a Bible in front of me. If I've had a bad night's sleep and I'm just tired and irritable, I'm going for the M&M's every day of the week. Like, that's just my heart, my body just leans that way. Especially if I'm hungry or I had something really salty. I'm ready. Like, give me the sweet thing. And But David here is trying to help us. Like, he's pulling on two metaphors that I think are really hard for us. Because I don't think about God's Word being more precious than gold, and I definitely don't think about it being sweet. But David's trying to teach us something. There is nothing more valuable and nothing better for you than God's Word. But man, that's a hard one to feel, right? And the other thing behind all of this is that I don't like rules. Rules are boring. Rules are restrictive. Rules are dull. And so when I think about God's Word, and I think most people, when they think of the Ten Commandments, when they think the, the law of God, they think dull, too restrictive, boring, and they may even go to the point where they call them oppressive. Right? But here David has tied sweetness and value, and really he then tied is in joy, joy to keeping God's Word. You ever kept a rule and said, that's joyful? No. No, no teenager goes into the world and says, I'm keeping rules so I can be happy. No. They think breaking the rules is what makes you happy. That's just the nature of things. And we really carry that with us for the, like into adulthood. Like We don't ever get rid of that. We just become more mature and sneaky, right? Like, so we don't get rid of this, this teenage mind uh, you know, completely. But... Do you know, do you know that the most 
the most joyful person in the world. I mean, literally, the most joyful person, the happiest person in the world is the one who kept God's law perfectly. I want you to tie the two. The happiest person in the world was the one who kept God's law perfectly. Remember, in the world, we pull those apart. If you want to be happy and joyful, go do what you want, how you feel, go get lots of pleasure, and then you'll be happy. But Jesus was the happiest person that has ever lived. Still, the happiest person in the world. Perfectly obeyed God's law. Check this out. I want you to see the connection. I want to tie it together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said this about his relationship with the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I, I haven't come to abolish them. You and I would want to abolish them. But I've come to fulfill them. Jesus said, I come not to get rid of the laws. I actually came to like obey them, to live into them. I'm going to fill them out. My life will be perfect. And he also describes himself as being happy and joyful. One of my favorite pastor scholars, a Scottish Presbyterian, his name's Sinclair Ferguson. He writes about this. And now I'm going to give you the full quote, but I'm going to really hit on the last part of it. He, this is something he wrote about the relationship between Jesus and the law. These rules of God. Check this out. Here's what Ferguson says. Jesus' life revealed what perfect obedience to the law looks like. Now, in that sense, it also revealed how good it is for us. No one had ever done that before. And therefore, no one had ever seen what it really looked like. In Christ, we catch a glimpse of the blessedness that accompanies living in wholehearted, unreserved devotion to the Heavenly Father. In Him, we see God's law in human form. We see that obedience to it is the pathway to glorify and enjoy Him. And here's the thing I really want to press on. At no point did Jesus find the law irritating, nor did it diminish His joy. He is the ultimate illustration of a person who says, Oh, how I love your law. In that sense, He is the perfect psalmist. I so often think of rules as irritating and boring and dull. At no point did Jesus ever throw his hands down and say, I'm done keeping rules. I'm doing what I want. I'm looking out for number one. Never. Keeping God's word was actually the means to all of his joy and happiness. I mean, you aren't going to find anyone more happy than Jesus. We typically think, serious. No, he was happy. Now, serious, yes, but happy and joyful. No human had ever obeyed God's law perfectly. Jesus did, and he happened to be the most joyful person in the world. At no point did Jesus find the law irritating or boring or diminish his joy. You know how many people have tried to live? Tried to live away from God's word and find happiness? Everyone. Have you figured it out yet? If you have, I'm done. I retire. You come on up. Nobody. Nobody has ever figured this out. But Jesus. And here's the other thing. We'll move right into that third section of the psalm now. Here's the third thing. When God words, God's word, the law of God confronts us, it exposes us. And man, that's a good thing. 
Here's what Lewis says about this last section, verses 12 through 14. He says this, The last section is concerned with his secret faults. As David has felt the sun, perhaps in the desert, searching him out in every nook of shade where he attempted to hide from it, so he feels the law searching out all the hiding places of his soul. And, and here's the piece that really grabs me, and Lewis picks up on it. It's, that, it's, that, it's, it's how he launches the last section. We don't have this on the slide. He says, verse 12 in Psalm 19, but who can discern their own errors? Who can actually figure out right and wrong in their own heart? And David's point is, you can't. Because you know what we default to? We default to how we feel. And we are so deceived that we think how we feel must be what is right. That's not true. I feel lots of different things. I feel lots of different things throughout the day. And just because I feel it does not make it right. And what's so crazy is we live in a culture that says if you feel it, it must be right. It must be who you are. So go be authentic and be yourself. No. God's Word says don't go be by yourself. Don't go do you. You go do Christ. You go be like Jesus. He's the standard. And God's Word's going to convict us. Every day I am convicted by God's Word. Sometimes I don't want to read the Bible because I would rather not be convicted that day. I'd rather not have any scripture in my head because I want to go do what I want. Let's go back to peanut M&M's. I guess this is just a therapy session, I guess. I think it's what we've turned this turned into. Like, I don't want to hear about gluttony when I'm into my fifth, fifth helping of M&M's. Like, I don't want to hear about gluttony. No. It feels really good. And if I'm watching something I like, man, like, I'm like, I will plow through a bag. But man, it feels good. Now, it just so happens that biology always hits me, right? Biology, always, like, my body always hits me with reality. But in the moral world, it may take a while for reality to hit you. And for every human being, they will hit reality. And so we need God's Word to expose us, to convict us. Because every one of us is not as good as we think we are. And we need that. Because we default to how we feel and what we think. And we are quite deceived by our feelings. Okay, so it just so happens that not only is Psalm 19 one of the places where, this, where we just grab this, the Hebrew writer says something along these same lines. Check this out. One of the more well-known passages out of the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew writer wrote this, chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 19 there? I just, I'm hoping you hear it like I'm hearing it. The Word of God exposes us, and we sure do need it. All right. Psalm 19 says something about what, what's happening in creation. says something about God's Word, and it says something about us. So let's make some application. Now, I'm driving this application on two questions. Two questions, and then we'll just pull, it, pull out of those two questions. Here it is. I think this psalm, like if I just pull out, like pull out, like and zoom out, I think it really challenges me, and I think it challenges all of us. What is the foundation of our lives? 
What is guiding our decisions? I think that's really what, what, what we need to think about. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I, I, I know the, like, the church answer is Jesus or God's Word. And you know that's where I'm going. But why I think this is application, why it gets on the ground where we live, is because we live in a world with access to so much information, so much media, so many advertisements. We literally are being trained to pick any other foundation but the one that is actually firm and stable. We are constantly being told what will make you happy. We're being sold. Do this, you'll be joyful. Pick this, you'll be happy. Go this way, have this relationship, you'll have a good life. Literally, we are constantly being trained on how to live the good life. Just this week, I came across this article in The Atlantic. Check out the headline. Check out the headline. What the longest study on human happiness found is the key to a good life. Now, those of you that have ever worked in any type of publishing or media, you know this is like clickbait. Like, here's how you get the good life. And to give it credibility, we're going to lean on one of the longest studies on happiness. It comes out of Harvard University. Okay, decades-long study. And what are they going to do? This author, in a matter of a 15-minute read, is going to tell you how to have the good life. That's literally what the, what the article's promising. And you know what I did? I clicked on it. It got me. I'm like, what, what's the good life? I want it. The, the small print you can't see says, the Harvard study of adult development has established a strong correlation between deep relationships and well-being. The question is, how does a person nurture those deep relationships? This author's going to go on then to explain how all that happens. And may I note, just as we train on how to read the news... The Harvard study did not establish a strong correlation between deep relationships and well-being. God did. And if you want a well-being, you've got to be in the right relationship. And it just so happens the best relationship in the world is with God. Like, God established that. Harvard did not. All right. But the promise was if you read this article, you get this relationship or these relationships, you'll have the good life. Well, that's just silly. That's just silly. But it was another false promise, and there are a million of them for you to pick from. Here's what you and I need. We need something stable. We need something firm. I recently, I'm reading a book um, from the 1960s, a historian um, writing in the 1960s. And it's a book from the 1960s. And he's writing about what he calls the graphic revolution, the rise of images uh, through our media. For him, it was TV. Obviously, it's shifted in our day. But man, it's such a timely book, even 60 years later. And one of the things he talks about is how fast, a cele- how fast celebrities rise and how quick they fall. And he has this line, and I'm not going to get it exactly because this is all spontaneous. It did not have this plan. But he says something like this. You can age a person by the celebrities they know. Right? I bet some of you, I bet some of you know some amazing celebrities from the 1970s. And I have no idea who they are. None. You could wax eloquent about all your favorite celebrities. Some of you from the 50s and 60s. I got no clue. Unless they're popping up on Pandora or Spotify and they're musicians, I probably don't know them. Why? 
because celebrities come and go. But we have a whole industry that tells us, be in the know, be on the cutting edge, watch the latest media, and you will have a good life. No. It doesn't matter who won the Oscars, or the Golden Globes, or the latest movie, or the latest book. I want something stable that does not change I don't need to have my life wrapped up in celebrities and trends and TikToks and snaps. Like that, that stuff literally is fleeting. I want stable. I think you do too, if you're honest. John Piper, uh, pastor, pastor scholar, he did an eight-year series to the book of Romans. We're going to rival it with Psalms. And Luke and Acts. An eight-year sermon series, and he launches the sermon series with some introduction. And in that introduction, he says something about Romans. I think it applies to the Bible. I've read this quote before. You're going to see it again. But man, it fits right here today. Here's what John Piper had to say about the Bible. He said, I'm not as moved today as I once was by the tyranny of the urgent or the need to respond to every trendy view that blows across the American cultural landscape. I'm well past midlife, and my confidence has grown very deep that the way to have lasting, to be lastingly relevant is to take your stand on old, tried, unshakable truths, rather than jumping from pragmatic bandwagon to bandwagon, trying to do the latest thing to make things happen in the church. So I don't feel any need to do that sort of thing anymore. Romans and the Bible is solid, it's durable, it's reliable, it's unshakable, it's old, it's thorough. It fits where I am in my later chapter. That's what I want. And so I'm going to have to have the Bible. Because that has lasted the centuries. Thousands of years. And it will go with us into eternity. So here's the thing. I'm telling you, I had some really creative ideas for what a next step might look like. I really did. I had a lot of creative ideas. I even included putting sand in baggies and you took home sand. Like it was, I mean, I was all over the place. But in the end, I thought, well, I mean, really, like, what's the most practical thing? Like, just right, right where we live, and it is this. You and I need God's Word in front of our eyes regularly. You know what's so interesting? Psalm 1. The whole book of Psalms lands on the most practical thing you and I can do. Literally. Like, the Bible has the most practical thing you and I can do. And the whole book of Psalms starts with that most practical thing. So I'm just going to read it. Check this out. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed, blessed. By the way, the Hebrew word for blessed is happy. Like, that's, like you could translate it happy. Happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord Here's the practical, who meditates on his law day and night. Well, that person's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. It's because they're stable. So here's your next step. I'm telling you, there's nothing creative about it, but it's just practical. And with your smartphones, it's really practical. Here it is. Read some part of God's Word every morning. And every evening this week. Literally. Just open up your Bible app and read a verse in the morning and do it before you go to bed. 
Like, start there. If you're not running a marathon, put God's Word in front of your eyes in the morning and in the evening. That will probably be the most stable thing you do. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, which is stable and durable and lasting. Now go with us into the week. We want to be people who are convicted. I mean, that You convict us, transform us, and maybe become more and more happy as we do it. And we're going to need your help with all of it. But we know you will. And we pray that under him who is our Savior, who is the happiest person in the universe, who is perfect and is our Savior, Jesus. Together we say, Amen.